Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was always agreed in Wexford that the festival shortens the winter for us. Not only did the festival imbue us with that sense of anticipation and excitement that did indeed shorten the winter, it ensured that Wexford was way ahead of other Irish towns and accepting that men from foreign places would arrive amongst us for those glorious October weeks and walk the streets of our place holding hands. Are them lads back again this year? The locals would inquire decades ago and long before any liberal attitude prevailed elsewhere. We learned not only how to live and let live, but to positively delight in that which was different, unexpected, never seen at other times. The lads were indeed back, quietly demonstrative in their affection, wrapping long knitted scarves around their necks, protection against the weather they evidently found harsh. Because I worked in a little leather shop on the quay, I used to take particular note of the beautiful leather bags that hung from their shoulders. Tan leather, so soft and tactile. We knew nothing then of man bags and we wondered what exotic contents might spill from these pouches. What could these striking strangers be carrying with them? My hope that one day they'd come into that little leather shop where I worked was never realised. Many strangers did indeed frequent that sitting-room-sized emporium where bags and belts hung from hooks on the ceiling. One customer in particular has stayed with me for many decades. I picked up on her disconsolate demeanour as I unhooked a tumble of merchandise for her. Her gaze was unfocused and distracted as she fingered the wear adding item after item to the pile she intended to purchase. The selection was random. Wallets, a glasses case, an elegant and very expensive clutch bag, a music case and a satchel that made her look like a schoolgirl as she tried it on cross-body style in front of the shop mirror. When I told her this, it brought a wan smile to her lips. I'm no schoolgirl, she intoned, her voice melancholy and wistful, and I'm not sure I've learned a hell of a whole lot either. As I wrapped up the purchases, she said, would do for Christmas presents, she told me that she was from Limerick. Neighbours had inveigled her to come with them for a few days of the opera festival. I don't feel well, she mumbled vaguely. They said the change would give me a lift. I was too young then to understand the import of the words spoken by a woman who was in her sixties, the age I am now. I wondered at the disillusionment of a woman who could hand over a fistful of notes for an array of luxury goods. A woman who carried the weight of her unknown grief like a boulder. A boulder she let down for a while as she sought a bit of respite amongst the shades of tan and mottled, oxblood and cognac. I can only hope that the festival did indeed give her the promised lift. I hope that she found it in her heavy heart to join the heaving throngs on the quay front for fireworks night. 
that exploding pyrotechnic sensation when the lit up sky caused our heartbeats to thump and our eyes to shine with the wonder life might hold. No matter what darkness lodged heavy in her soul, the evidence that life could burn with coloured flames and explosive shades of red, orange, purple and silver couldn't but heal with redemptive grace. I hope she lifted her shining eyes to the heavens to delight in showers of falling stars, fountains of light, peony roses, chrysanthemums and Catherine wheels as they crackled and burst over us, bright with wonder. She came, dispirited and sad, to our festive town. I hope that as the fireworks took her out of herself, that she too hummed along with all of us, reaching back into memory for La Donne Mobile or O Mio Babino Caro. I hope the lads were there too, the exotic strangers in their knitted scarves, the men who were blessed with love. People often ask me, how did you become a storyteller? Like many stories, there's a long version and a short. The short version was my meeting with storyteller Liz Weir and her encouragement to pursue it as a career. The longer version goes back to my childhood. It embraces my Uncle John listening to his radio. Me sitting in the back of the family car, watching the moving kaleidoscope painted by Michal O'Hare's words. And seeing Eamon Kelly on television. I loved listening to him. Somewhere in my young mind, I contemplated the idea of becoming a storyteller, but dismissed it. Unlike my hero, I wasn't old. I didn't wear a cap. I didn't have a funny accent. And I didn't talk about in my father's time. And yet that phrase, or more accurately, my parents' time, shaped my love of stories. My parents are wonderful storytellers, relating tales and anecdotes of life of when they were growing up among the narrow streets of Wexford Town. They wove a rich tapestry of colours, smells, tastes and sounds as we sat around the kitchen table after dinner, drinking tea. Their words fell about me like the pitter-patter of rain, gentle, moist and nourishing. It was the narrative of their lives, stories of gruff and bellowing missionary priests, how one of them walked the country roads with a blackthorn stick, poking the ditch to discover unsuspecting young couples. My parents dancing in the town hall, now the art centre. Trips to the flea pit at the cinema, a football punctured with a knife to cut short the game. Cabbages banged on the front doors of houses, local rivalries, colourful characters and family histories. These imbued in me a love of narrative, of the spoken word and of listening. Then there was the story of Loftus Hall, a mansion on the Hook Peninsula. A stranger appeared one night at a party. 
The guests, and in particular the owner's daughter Anne, fell under his charms. Late in the night, Anne bent down to pick up a card, glanced across to where the young man was sitting and saw the cloven hoof of the devil. She screamed and he jumped through the roof. Now every August we would travel to Slade Head in the shadow of Hook Lighthouse to fish off the rocks for mackerel. At the time, Loftus Hall was a hotel. I stared out into the dark night at the lights, terrified, expecting to see the devil appear at any moment. This is one of my favourite stories to tell to this day. One of the things that fascinated me most while dancing in their raindrops was how much things and the landscape of Wexford Town had changed. As I listened, I innocently believed that I would never witness such change. I wouldn't grow old relating stories to my children and grandchildren about what used to be there. But it happened. Housing estates, apartments, factories and retail parks invaded the landscape of my childhood. The gate where the fairies had left money for us, the fields where we caught frogs and newts, where we gathered conkers, fearful of being shot at by the grumpy farmer, the ditches where we built forts, the river where we caught barred oaks, the site where we shared a campfire with a gypsy family, their goat and their horse-drawn caravan. All are lost beneath concrete and tarmac, tame lawns and trimmed shrubs. When I walk through that landscape now, recalling those days, my own sons marvel at the stories. On occasion, we retrace some of the steps where the seeping footprint of development hasn't yet tread. As we do, I hear echoes, or out of the corner of my eye, glimpse a movement of the spirits of my past still enjoying the freedom of those days. Or is it just my imagination? Yet as a boy, I would catch flecks of the stories my parents told me on the streets on people's faces and in the buildings. Do the spirits of my youth still reverberate in the deep soil of place? I believe the dreams, the shouts, the laughs and tears of my generation cannot be buried as long as we tell those stories. And I wonder, do the people in their houses and apartments hear those echoes or catch glimpses of the revenants of those days? I only hope their lives are rich enough to be open to these gifts. The night the birds gate-crashed the opera house has entered Wexford folklore. I remember it all too well because I was there, on the eve of the new millennium. It was the opening of the annual Wexford Opera Festival, and not just another night at the opera. Aficionados throughout the world have flocked in their thousands to Wexford every October since 1951, for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see little-known works by famous composers. The 700 or so tickets for the premiere at the Theatre Royal in 1999, much like any other year, were like gold dust, having sold out months in advance. The tiny opera house on High Street, until its demolition in 2005, was squeezed between terraced housing, 
like the Rover's Return in Coronation Street. For broadcasting purposes, the premiere is an occasion primed to run like clockwork. The opera starts at 8 sharp. Latecomers are not admitted. One of the best vantage points for the backstage staff of the theatre to see the spectacular fireworks which launched the Wexford Festival half an hour before curtain up was from the roof of the Opera House, which rose over the harbour town. They gained access via a door which was left ajar, but they were not alone. Roosting among the nooks and crannies of the old 19th century roof were the town's starlings, black as ink and invisible in the darkness. Nobody had forewarned them about the fireworks, which erupted like Vesuvius half an hour before the cast of the Queen of Sheba took to the stage. The explosions in the night sky were greeted by a tremendous roar from the thousands of men, women and children assembled on the key front. Startled, the starlings scrambled like a flying squadron and took refuge in the Theatre Royal, which they accessed through the door left open on the roof. Inside, they would have discovered that the ceiling of the old Theatre Royal was conveniently crisscrossed by four wooden beams, a perfect place to roost above the stalls. The beams were high, warm and dry, and out of harm's reach from the fireworks. The starlings, because it was way past their bedtime, were so unobtrusive that nobody in the theatre below, which was slowly filling up, realised they were there. Best of all, they had a bird's-eye view of the stage directly below. Before long, conductor Claude Schnitzler assumed his position above the orchestra in the sunken pit. The lights were abruptly dimmed and a hush settled upon the theatre. After a rousing hour on Naveen by the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland, the overture to the Queen of Sheba came and went. So far, so quiet. Until midway through the first aria by Cornelia Helfricht in the title role, the starlings stared, and they behaved the way all garden birds do when they hear singing. They sang back. It is not commonly known that starlings are related to minor birds, which means they are gifted at mimicry. A cacophony of warbling and shrills, quite beautiful in starling language, began to rain down from on high. There was, too, the occasional deposit, bird confetti, you might say, which in some cultures is supposed to bring good luck. The audience, well-versed in sitting motionless through hour upon hour of opera, brave to chirping, and whenever the starlings let loose, they continue to sit with indifference and commendable stiff upper lip. There was, naturally, the odd chuckle and eyes raised to the heavens. Schnitzler ploughed gamely on in the best traditions of show business, but it couldn't have been easy for a conductor whose regular haunt was Opry National de Paris. The birds expressed a bias for the German mezzo-soprano Cornelia Helfricht, making her Wexford debut in front of the world's most unforgiving opera critics. When an aria finished, the birds chirruped enthusiastically. There was no let-up for the entire four acts of the opera. The starlings interrupted the score at will, all the while dispensing good luck onto the shoulders of expensive gowns and black tie attire, 100 feet below. Finally, after the Queen of Sheba's paramour took an age to expire in a sandstorm, the opera was over. But the singing, however, wasn't. The starlings chirped away and continued to dispense their charity. 
Never before did the Theatre Royal empty with such urgency. There's no easy way to remove starlings from an opera house, but suffice to say that a day later, and before the second night of the opera festival, they were persuaded to vacate their ornate perch. The little Protestant church of St. Iberius in Wexford town describes itself as one of Wexford's oldest treasures. Built in 1760, it has much to offer the casual visitor. Chief amongst its attractions are the elegant classical wall monuments commemorating deceased parishioners. These provide fascinating glimpses into the lives and preoccupations of a past time. The touching memorial to Elizabeth Ogle, for example, erected in 1815 by her still grieving sister, brings us straight into the lives of these Jane Austen era women. It reads, a more than loved sister and a faultless friend, her mind was as pure and angelical as her form was beautiful. If a human being could be perfect, she was perfect. Another plaque, commemorating one Major Charles Vallotton of the 56th Regiment of Infantry, offers an account of the Major's violent death, which, while saying much, raises more questions than it answers. The inscription describes the Major's death on the 11th of July, 1793, when zealously cooperating with the civil power in support of the mild and beneficent laws of his country. Vallotton, we are told, received a mortal wound from a savage hand. The details given serve only to whet the appetite. Whose savage hand was responsible for Vallotton's death? What mild and beneficent laws was he enforcing at the time? The church offers a brief explanation for the visitor. This was a time when all citizens were obliged to pay a tithe to the Church of Ireland, regardless of their own religious persuasion. Protests had erupted in Wexford, and Major Vallotton had been killed in a fracas with one John Moore. Vallotton had, we are told, gone to parley with Moore, but as both were walking away, they turned on each other, inflicting mortal wounds. It's a diplomatic version of events, which avoids attributing blame to either protagonist in the fight. Other accounts describe the events leading up to the death when two Catholic anti-tithe protesters were arrested and imprisoned in Wexford Town Jail, and a large group of their supporters marched on the town in protest, wielding pikes and other weapons. Soldiers, led by Vallotton, were sent to meet them. Vallotton, enraged by the sight of one of his officers being taken hostage by the crowd, plunged a sword into John Moore, who responded by striking the officer with his scythe. Both men died of their injuries. The soldiers then opened fire and at least nine protesters were killed. Later, some who had fled the scene were arrested and hanged. 
It was a bloody event, giving a vivid illustration of the tensions and frustrations building up in Wexford just five years before the revolutionary uprising of 1798. This same church displays commemorations to a local family of the parish called Hatton, one of whom, William Hatton, fought with the United Irishmen in 1798. His mother, Elizabeth Hatton, appealed to Dublin Castle on behalf of a local rebel leader called Edward Roach. Like the rest of the country, this small Church of Ireland community was divided in its response to the political circumstances in which it found itself. Remembering this makes it less surprising that the Church of St. Tiberius is also linked to nationalist poet Speranza, Jane Francesca Elgi, whose parents were married there. Her grandfather was Archdeacon Charles Elgi, to whom the church's striking French Gothic style stained glass windows are dedicated. Speranza, who married Sir William Wilde, was, of course, the mother of Oscar Wilde. Elsewhere in the church, a bust of Emily Hughes, a local dignitary, holds pride of place. This was the work of John Henry Foley, an Irish Catholic sculptor who was immensely popular in 19th century Britain. His works include the Albert Memorial in Hyde Park, a prestigious royal commission, but Foley also sculpted the monument to nationalist icon Daniel O'Connell in Dublin's O'Connell Street. The church has survived, carefully preserved, since its creation by Waterford architect John Roberts in the 18th century. It offers a glimpse of lives which sometimes, as with Valentin, serve to illustrate historic tensions and divisions, but which also, as with Speranza and William Hatton, defy lazy stereotyping of religious and political allegiances. This fascinating building is an historic source in itself encouraging us to explore our history in all its sensitivities and complexities. It is to be hoped it will be preserved and cherished for many years to come, as a valuable part of the heritage of every Irish person. The festival is back. Nothing can dim the style, the glamour or the world-class music that the opera festival brings to the good people of Wexford Town. While face masks and hands shiny red from the stringent use of sanitizer are now part of the dress code, there's still the chance to overhear opera singers limber up their vocal cords at the open window of a guest house if you take an early morning stroll around the town. Last week, in a fit of nostalgia for past Wexford Opera Festivals, I pulled out the old programmes and found the one for 1981, the year my husband and I answered an ad in the local paper looking for volunteers to act as extras in Mozart's unfinished opera, Zaida. Described as a zingspiel in two acts, 
Zaida comprises a set of beautiful arias that tell a story of star-crossed lovers at the court of the 16th century Turkish Sultan Suleiman. Zaida, a European woman, has graduated from captive slave girl to the Sultan's favourite. And all goes well until she falls in love with Gomatz, also a slave. There's trouble then, of course, as she and Gomatz attempt to elope, but are captured and thrown into prison. This was the story we were told when we turned up for the audition, along with seven or eight other ordinary citizens in the foyer of the Theatre Royal. Audition is possibly too strong a word for what happened next. The director, a rather posh young Londoner, asked us if we could act. Not really, I said, answering for both of us and putting my coat back on. But after some frantic whispering with his assistant, the director pulled himself together, sighed dramatically and assured us that, as the roles were non-singing and non-speaking, he was very confident that in three weeks he could train us to run on and off stage at the correct times while wearing the correct costumes. We'd be playing more than one part each, so changes of wigs and cumbersome robes would have to be managed, sometimes in a matter of seconds, in the wings. Before the day was over, I had been kitted out with a long black wig and the three costumes for my assigned roles. A burqa-shrouded woman, a harem girl and a merchant's wife. My husband was to be a slave, a prison guard and an Arab merchant. The next evening, in an old military building in Barrack Street, we began three weeks of intensive rehearsals. It was tough going. Unlike most of the other extras, who, it turned out, were members of the local Light Opera Society, my husband and I were complete novices and found it a challenge to memorise our moves and positions, even with the aid of lines of coloured tape stuck to the floorboards. We also discovered that, as well as running on and off stage, some acting was now required. React, react, the director would shout at me and the other female extras shrouded in our burkas and veils. Look intimidated. Use your body language. My husband was in a similar quandary. A peaceable young man who, as a panel beater, spent his days tapping dents out of bumpers and giving makeovers to cars. He was now required to carry a rifle, look menacing and, when called upon, arrest the fleeing lovers and fling them into prison. But any temptation to throw in the towel completely disappeared when we began to rehearse with the singers, two very friendly Scotsmen who from the first handshake were like long-lost friends of ours, a charismatic American tenor, a very tall Scandinavian bass, and a shy young Englishwoman called Leslie Garrett who would sing the title role. By the time Leslie had sung the first bar of Rua Zaft, Mein Holdes Lieben, Saida's lullaby for her lover, we were all hooked. From then on, rehearsals were tinged with magic. We were close to tears when Leslie and the Scottish tenor Neil Mackey sang a duet. And just when we thought it couldn't get any better, the RTE Symphony Orchestra tuned up in the pit. Suddenly it was easier to move, even to act a little, as Mozart's glorious music broke over us, got under our skins and into our hearts. 
Once the festival started, we were on stage every third night and managed to get through three performances without ruining the show. Then came the last night. Things were a little tense. The props manager lost her temper when she had to run out to the shop for a bottle of Ribena and a box of Turkish Delight as once again the harem girls had gobbled up all the edible props. But that was only a blip compared to the string of expletives that issued from the mouth of the stage manager when coming to the end of the first act he observed that the captive Zaida had a visible escape route on stage. The Sultan's guards who were supposed to be on hand to arrest her were missing. Angry messages relayed over the intercom in the dressing rooms failed to locate them until too late they were spotted, feet up, relaxing backstage in the wrong costumes. Miss Garrett saved the show. As she moved towards her escape route, she spotted the unmanned gap, turned round and without missing a note and still singing at full volume, ran in the opposite direction to throw herself at two unsuspecting guards who leapt into action and obligingly arrested her and Gomatz. There's no mention of the non-singing, non-speaking extras in the programme, and I can't find any photographic evidence of our four nights treading the boards. But it doesn't really matter. This time of year, all I have to do is shut my eyes and I'm back in the old Theatre Royal, eating stolen Turkish delight in the wings and listening to Leslie Garrett sing Zaida. Bringing opera home to Grandad. The town fills its lungs full and sweeps shawls and scarves and suits along streets. We catch fireworks between our palms. Heels clack on cobbles. The foyer door swings blasts of warm air into the night. The orchestra tunes in the pit and pitches of voice blur like a soundscape in rain. The lights dim. A city of noise is swerved into one. Sound can fill your body like no other sense. A violin can liquefy air. A voice can shape it in waves. The first year I was only six. I devoured jellies during the interval to stay awake. I've gone back every year since. My granddad can conduct a whole opera in front of the TV. Last year we couldn't go to the opera, so we brought the opera to him. One soprano outside on the gravel and birdsong in the background. He closed his eyes and Granny watched him listen. This morning we heard Twill Shorten the Winter by Margaret Galvin. The Path That Led Me to Storytelling was by Joe Brennan. Like a Bird on a Beam by Tom Mooney. The Church of St. Iberius, a Wexford treasure 
by Jackie Morrissey. Opera Nights by A.M. Cussons and Bringing Opera Home to Grandad, a poem by Sinead O'Reilly. The music was La Donna Immobile from Verdi's Rigoletto, sung by the three tenors with the Monte Carlo Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Zubin Mehta. Open the Door Softly by Archie Fisher, performed by Donald Clancy on vocals and guitar, David Power on whistle and Kieran Summers on flute. Then a duet from the 1999 Wexford Opera Festival production of Goldmark's Queen of Sheba, sung by Mauro Nicoletti and Cornelia Helfricht with the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Claude Schnitzler. Boule Vogue, played by Noel Hill on concertina, and Leslie Garrett singing Ruha Zanft, Mein Holdes Lieben, from the 1981 Wexford Opera Festival production of Mozart's Saida, with the RTE NSO, conducted by Nicholas Cleabury. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.